This week's amazing guest is the inspirational Brenda Burunji, aka Lady Unchained. Lady Unchained is a poet and founder of Unchained Poetry, a platform for artists with experience of the criminal justice system. In 2008, 20-year-old Brenda got into a fight in a club whilst trying to protect her sister from being attacked. Serving 11 months of her prison sentence, her life changed completely. Whilst her experience was shocking, Brenda looks back on and forward to a bright future with a mission to prove there is life after prison. Through poetry, she tells her own personal story and the story of those with similar lived experience that, as she says, are often left untold due to shame, stigma, and negative labels. Lady Unchained has worked with several charities, hosted inspirational storytelling nights, and through poetry and music performed by artists who've experienced the justice system firsthand. She also co-hosts for National Prison Radio show, We Are Straight Line, a show about getting out and staying out of prison. Brenda's life has been anything other than linear, but she is most definitely on the way up and making a positive impact. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is your London Legacy. I've got a special offer for you. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that at the end of each interview, we ask our guests to tell us one or two of their favourite places in London that is personal to them and perhaps not everybody knows about. Well, I've now compiled for you 60 of my guests' favourite places in London, and you can get this unique brochure 100% free. Alongside each guest recommendation is a brief quote explaining why they love the place, a lovely picture of it, plus links to the venue and the podcast episode itself so you can check it out in your own time. It's completely free, and all you have to do is go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com on the homepage and click on the red button where it says Guests' Favourite Places in London, click here for your free copy. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did creating it for you. Keep listening, best wishes and keep safe. Steve. Well today I'm absolutely delighted to have on the podcast the the one and only Brenda Beringi. I hope Beringi. Yeah, I didn't get that right first time. <laughs> you did. A, AKA Lady Unchained. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on the show today. It is amazing to be here Steve honestly. Amazing. Well, yeah, yeah. We haven't even we haven't even started. We haven't even started yet. You know, it's going to be a good one. It's going to be a good one when the guest is smiling and everything's good. Everything's good in the world. So I better I better introduce you. I mean, you're a poet, a broadcaster, a public speaker, advocate for life after a prison as well. So yeah. I mean, that's a that's a hell of a thing exactly. to live up to, isn't it? Yeah. Right. You do, you, you do all of those things. It's, <laughs> a, it's a lot. Ne- never a dull moment. <laughs> Multi-talented and all of that. Multi-talented, absolutely. So, how are you doing? Anyway, you enjoying the uh, the warm weather we're having I mean, at the moment? Yeah, I'm really happy about. I'm. A, I mean, I'm a Leo, so I love the warmth. Like, I'm a summer baby. I love being like in the heat. When it's raining, I'm a bit sad and a little bit depressed. So, when it's warm, I'm always a little bit more happier and kind of like in my element. So, yeah, I'm enjoying this weather. It's nice. You were saying just before we went live that your birthday's coming up in a few days' time. Yeah. So happy birthday. Thank and you. It, Thank and, you. And then it t- always tends to rain on your birthday, which is unfortunately in August. It, I really, I'm praying. I'm really praying, Steve, because like, you know, my mum's here this year and she's got a nice little guy. She's, you know, because we've all been on lockdown. So my mum, all the older people have been doing their gardens up so my mum's really excited about her garden because she's done it all up and she's like let's let's do something at the house and I'm thinking it's probably gonna rain like I, I don't have faith in my birthday not raining like but I really hope that it doesn't to be honest 
Well, I'm sure the I'm sure the the gods will smile on you this year. You'll have a, a sunny day. Amen. You, you, amen to that. <laughs> we, I mean, we, we've had amazing weather actually, haven't we? Really, all through uh, all through April and May. And, all through uh, the now lockdown. It's gonna, all through. Yeah, I want to I want to ask you about that that dreaded word lockdown because lockdown to to regular Joes like me means COVID lockdown and not being able to get out of your home to go and visit your family. But lockdown to to you. Has a complete has a completely different resonance and meaning, doesn't it? Yep, yep, yep. Lockdown to me, the first time I ever heard the word lockdown was in a prison setting as an inmate, and even then, I still kind of didn't understand it. Um, the the funny thing about this lockdown, in like the COVID lockdown, is the fact that for me, having been in an actual lockdown, it kind of took a lot for me because I was a bit kind of like, wait, is this? Am I in prison or? is what's going on and then Steve they started giving out fines like when you're outside and stuff and it just it, it really is so bad because it, it was triggering me because I'm like fines that sounds like red pen when you're in prison and you do something wrong you have to, you get written up and you're not allowed to leave a certain area of the prison unless you have a, a permission slip a movement slip so to me it just all started to sound like I was back in jail but with technology <laughs> It was weird. Very weird. So yeah, lockdown to me has meant a whole different meaning. Um, this whole lockdown thing crazy. But I guess as someone who spent some time inside and it was eleven months, I think, in total, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes. Apart from the actual word lockdown, f- physically having, I suppose, a degree of freedom taken away has brought back some some memories for you. Hundred percent. Um I live in South East London and um what's funny about my building I've lived in this flat before and after prison um which is very interesting because most people do tend to lose their flats when they go to prison or their houses or whatever um and I fought for this house I mean I probably shouldn't have but I did and I live here and I've got a roof over my head so I'm grateful but before prison I didn't realize just how these hallways in my um flat look like prison hallways I mean to a literally down to the the, the length of the, the hallways, the, the ceiling, um, the lighting. And what's bad is during the lockdown, the council done this weird stuff where they put lights, like, you know, in a, in a hospital when the lights kind of like they're monitored ones. So as soon as you start walking, they start coming on. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, sen- sensors. Yeah, I, I, I freaked out because I was like, is, am I back in jail? Was, honestly, but I never before prison compared my hallways to a prison. You know, maybe they had the same architects. Who knows? (laughs) I personally believe that because I think this building that I live in is so old. I mean, my neighbors' grandparents used to live in these buildings. Is it a high? Is it a high-rise block where you are? Yeah, it's like it's so. I can't even explain it because it's not like a tower block. It's like it's like a square kind of block, but it goes up in different levels. And I can tell you that it's not an even building, so it, it it just they forced it to become a flat. I think it was like. You know, like back in the days when they had the workhouses and people used to go and work in those places and some families lived there because they couldn't afford that proper housing. That's what this was. And they turned it into actual accommodation for, I guess, people on on the council. It's the council of the state, isn't it? So Where, where are you? Are you in Greenwich way, South? Yeah, well, I mean, I would I, I say Greenwich Borough because yeah. it sounds more fancy, but I live in Greenwich. Sounds posher. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It really does. Like, but I live in Woolwich, Woolwich part of um, Greenwich Borough, which is nice too, apart from kind of where I live. You always have them areas though in like 
everywhere has that. You have like the nice Everywhere park. in London has a right? decent park and just across the road is a Just less, across the road. Yeah, if you think yeah. about Holloway, Holloway Prison's now closed down. And um, where it was, across the road from Holloway, are these beautiful houses in North London, um, one of which my auntie used to live in. Um, so the only time I'd gone to her house, I was going right next to Holloway. But my small childlike mind never even registered that that was a prison. Like We used to walk past it every day going down to Finsbury Park to go shopping. And not once did anyone turn around and go, oh, my God, could you imagine there's actual prisoners in there? Not once until I was driven in that van after my court case and taken to Holloway. And I could see as we got to the journey to Holloway, I started to re- like recognise areas that, oh, this is the way we'll drive to my auntie's house. And then it literally hit me because we turned, I think, right and to the left was my auntie's house. And it just threw me. And now you know where every prison in London is. Oh in, in my the UK. god! And and I don't even say I can't even say I know all of them. There's so many. And I don't mean that because you've been in all of them. I mean, yeah. of the, I mean because of the work you do. Obviously. There's yeah. There's so many prisons. I just I can't understand. For me, the work I do is all about you know getting people to kind of like change their ways or kind of rebuild after prison and support them through that. But if there's so many prisons, then they have to be filled up, which means more people are going to go to prison. And so the work I do becomes harder because there's more people that need my support. And I'm just a one one person that like, with, you know, just no funding, no nothing, just a, a big heart and I guess a mission to just change the way people see ex-offenders or people that have been to prison. Yeah. You know? Well, let's take a step back before we dive into what you're presently doing. Let's just, if, if you don't mind that is, let's just talk a, bit, a little bit about your upbringing and your family life and how, how was that for you? Where did you grow up? Literally, I've grown up in Greenwich. <laughs> My right, whole, okay. like, I've never uh-huh. left Greenwich, like, to be honest. Um, I grew up, like, at the time, when I was younger, I actually lived in the heart of Greenwich, so, like, near Cutty Sark and stuff, which was still a council estate, but it was a nicer kind of council estate. They had, like, um, they had, like, community stuff. So, in the summer, like, these times, they would have, like, festivals. And, you know, I remember the festivals because... You know, when you're a child and you get involved in competitions and you don't win, you always remember that you lost and never won anything. But this particular festival, I remember that I got like a, we doing a lucky dip and I got my, I think it was an alien, you know, them alien babies that everyone had. And I got one of them and I, for the first time had won something. And I was, so, I was so excited. It wasn't nothing um, like extravagant, but it was just the fact that I won it. Brenda won this, you know? Um, so we'd always like, get together um there was like a basketball court so I used to live right opposite the basketball court um I was a, I was a bit t- tomboyish like um it's funny saying that now because like, I love makeup um <laughs> um before you wouldn't even get me to put any makeup on I'd be like why I don't I don't want to paint my face like why do I want to paint my face you know um <laughs> so I played a lot of sports um I had two best friends and at the time those were two boys and I think because of them I began kind of loving myself more. It's very weird. Um, I think I had a lot of confidence. I used to walk with my head tilted down. Um, and one thing I used to say is that, oh, I just don't want a, a step in dog doo-doo. There's always dog doo-doo everywhere. <laughs> and really, it was more of a confidence thing, I think, um, because now I walk with my head up high. But I remember my best friend, um, actually, those two best friends are now both passed away, um, which is like, they it's so crazy because... I knew them so well was like a free, like a little triangle of us. And when I was like, you know, growing up with them, I kind of had brotherhood 
um, I would never get in trouble. They would always have my back. Like if something was like somebody wanted to trouble me, they'd be like, no, that's just Brenda. Like, no, it's not. It's just Brenda. Stop it. Like, and everything would just be sorted with no, I guess, no violence, no anger, no nothing. And this is a time when before, I guess, in my area, we had like small kind of groups of gangs. You want to call it that now. Now you call them gangs. But when I was growing up, we was just all a group of friends that yeah. knew each other. Um, just hanging out. Hanging out. Like there was like Woolwich Town Centre was the, the, the main part. So everyone that went to school around that area, the buses would always stop in Woolwich Centre. So everybody from different schools would be in the same area. Um, and there was no trouble. Like it was all together. Um so it was all a bit confusing for me when things kind of changed. Um, but yeah, those two boys were my main kind of life. But I have sisters. I have an older brother, an older sister. Then there's me. Then I have two younger sisters. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, five of you. Five of us. Five. <laughs> yeah. My brother's the oldest. Then I've got my older sister, then me. And then the two younger ones. And um, we kind of all grew up as a little unit. So my older sister and brother didn't grow up in the UK with me I grew up here with my two little sisters who were born here um and my mum and it was kind of just us for a long time and our cousins and then obviously my older sister came a little while a couple years later my older brother came and then now we was like this little family unit and I think we just always looked out for each other it was like you don't just wake up and expect your mum to make you breakfast. We would wake up and make breakfast for each other. Um, like if my mum was sleeping, we'll just call her in or whatever. Like it was, we was brought up to make sure that we could do everything. So at a young so age. So who, who, in, who instilled that into you, all that sort of My mum. Yeah. My mum. My mum, she's, a, you know, I'm, so I was born in Uganda, Kampala. Um, I came here when I was about four uh, I don't know. I was really young. Um, I don't know. I, I, all I know is that when I was here, I didn't remember my life in Africa. Um, it was one of them ones where they had to kind of tell me, you know, you have cousins. I'm like, okay, all right then. Um, so my mum kind of brought us up to firstly speak our language. Um, my mum can speak English, but sometimes she acts like she can't speak English. Um, she still has a little bit of an accent, but I think her English is really good. So when we were growing up, if she spoke to us in in our language, which is Luganda, you'd have to reply in Luganda. Because if you replied in English, she would look at you and be like, what, you, what, what does that mean? Even though she knew what it meant, it was just a way of us kind of still having that connection to our language. So all of us, even my sisters who were born here, can speak the language fluently. Like you, you can put us in a room and even though we might not seem that we understand, we will be understanding everything. And I think my mum... Make, just wanted us to make sure that when we go back to Africa, we're able to communicate with people because not everyone can speak English like us. Um, so, yeah, we grew up. It was just, I guess, just a normal little family household, you know. Um, I don't really think that it's funny because South London, there's so many different cultures. Like, you know, in my, I went to an all-girls school, secondary school, and I had every kind of friend. There was every kind of friend. <laughs> like, there was no the black girls chill with the black girls or the white girls chill with the white girls. We was all mixed, you know, um, and we all kind of looked out for each other. It's a very weird, um, it's a weird place. But even though I was such a tomboy, I went to a girl's school because my mum wanted me to make sure that I go to a um, girl's school and not get influenced by the boys. Um, <laughs> so um, I kind of, it's weird knowing that I went to a girl's school and then ended up in a prison full of women. 
Because to be honest with you, Steve, I didn't know that there was that many women in prison. I, I kind of just thought it was like fake news that women go to prison. I didn't think that that happened. You know, it was just I thought it was like in, you know, bad girls and all them shows. It's just like drama. But yeah, I, I found out the hard way, unfortunately. So yeah, anyway, as I got older, I think everyone kind of just started to go off on their own. And I moved out of my mum's house quite early, um, got my hostel. What sort of age did you move out? Maybe about 17, which um, for especially for like African girls, it's not something you do. Was that a per- personal choice of yours or was that circumstance led you to, you had to do that? I had actually got a boyfriend at the time and, um, you know, it was, it we was kind of talking about moving out and stuff. And also, you know, my mum got worried that I might decide to move in with this boy um, and because he was older than me and she... Well, into, think, the fam- into the family home. Yeah, into no, he lived. He lived on his own. Like he had lived in like a shared shared place. So it was like what, like you have a room and you live like in a shared place or whatever. So she was a bit worried that I might move there. Um, so <laughs> the aunties all sat down and had a discussion about Brenda and what would be best to do. Um, and they decided that it's best that they, you know, put me into the housing and try to get me a place of my own that way. If worse comes to worse and this guy and me and him don't work out and I had decided to move into his house, you can't kick me out. <laughs> it's an African thing. <laughs> Just always have your backup plan. So they yeah. didn't want me to like decide to like one day be angry and be like, I'm moving out to this guy's house because it's, you know, you're so young. You're just you're kind of following what you think is love and whatever. Um, and I feel like that could have happened because of like the disagreements and stuff. So they decided that I should, you know, move out and um she wrote a letter to the council and I got a hostel I actually went into the housing um to say oh I've got nowhere to stay and as I got there I turned around and my best friend Derek was sitting there doing the same thing like and it was so bad because like saying this now we probably could have stayed in our mum's house a lot longer um but you know part of us was like yeah we're gonna we're grown up now we're gonna get our houses and we're gonna have flats and all chill together and you know um it was very funny Steve because everyone in the housing was like all like wearing rough clothes and with bags and all these like bags with holes in it and we've come in there nothing like you expected I guess uh well we've come in there with like brand new trainers hair my hair's done like my, I'm wearing my good clothes he's wearing his new crepes you know we look like fine we look like we don't need we're not desperate <laughs> you hadn't done your research had you? we hadn't really? done our research and it was only when we sat down and we was like do you think maybe we look like we don't really need these houses <laughs> yeah, do, you, do you think mum will have us back <laughs> But yeah, we both we both got our flats. Uh, well, we got hostels um, and moved out. And I think, to be honest, I because I was with my partner um, at the time, I I didn't really do the young kind of. You get to like seventeen, eighteen, and you go clubbing with your friends and stuff. I didn't really do that. I was kind of in this relationship, um, so I wasn't going parties and stuff unless it was like a family gathering. Well, 17 is such a young age, isn't it, to leave, really? I mean, you think you know it all at 17. I'm, I'm sure I did. But uh, we know nothing. I mean, you know nothing at 17. You're a kid. At all. Yeah. At all. At all. You really believe you do, though. You really, really believe you do. And you believe that all your feelings that you're having um, and feeling are all because this is real and this is what you, because you, you know it's right. But actually, it's not. It's more just you're young and kind of fascination and especially if um, one thing that I think prevented me from moving forward when I was younger was that 
I didn't like failure. So because I was always the, you know, the person that people call on. So Brenda, your little sister starting secondary school, do you be, you'll be able to start, take her with, take her to school that day. Yes, I can do that. Brenda, do you think you can do this? Yes, I can do that. Brenda, can you wake up at this time and get this done? Yes, I can do that. So I was always so you a were yes the responsible girl. sibling. Yeah, yeah. You I were was the one just who took, took everything on your own shoulders. Took it all on, you know, I'll get pocket money. I remember my mum giving me pocket money and I'd lend it out to my older brother and sister. Um, so the next week I get pocket money, they're paying me back. So I've got way more pocket money than I could manage. But And then what happens is I just lend them more money. So because as long as I had phone credit which at the time five pound is, you know, you're, you're winning, you're talking to the whole world um, at that age. Um, so I always had money. So I guess I just never needed anything. But what, what I was doing, I guess, personally, looking back now as an adult, I think I was hiding so much pain. And because I was the person that everyone called upon or trusted to be there, I think I just didn't ever want to let people know that I needed help. And even though that's your family, you should be able to somehow say but it's I guess failure for me was kind of not an option but I guess everybody's different some people hold it in some people don't like to show what they perceive to be a weakness want to show strength of character other people have to 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 wear their heart on their sleeve don't they yeah exactly exactly yeah I think that at that point led up to me um, then finally kind of somehow rebuilding that relationship with my family and kind of having that family bond again, going out, partying and clubbing, which was for me something that was like, oh my God, like what? <laughs> okay, this is loads of people. Like I hadn't done that before. I'd gone to like parties here and there, but it wasn't like, this is regular. I was going out on a regular occasion. Like I'll get dressed up and, you know, I was told this, this is how people dress and, you know, whatnot. And I went out and I remember my older sister, she... She had like some connections to this club. I think my whole family had a connection to this club in South London. Um, Because I remember when we was younger, we used to go there. It was a restaurant. It wasn't a club. It was like, because, you know, like a pub, pubby kind of place. So families can go there. So we used to go there. But they used to do actual Ugandan food. So there would be African food. Um, And I remember going there um, when we was younger. And I think I even drank my first... Smirnoff Ice at 16 when we was at a party and I was allowed to have a Smirnoff Ice and I was so excited because I thought I was an adult um but then again I just didn't drink again after that it was like alcohol wasn't it was in my family but it wasn't something that I had taken on so what I had known was that my sister had had a few issues with people um in the past in this club or something to do with boyfriends or partners I don't know Steve I've never had a fight for a man and that's just just not me, really. I'll be honest. Um, if if we're gonna have an argument over a man, just have him, because I I don't I've got too many fights to to fight that actually make mean sense. I can't fight for somebody that doesn't want to be here. So I didn't understand it, and I really didn't take it that serious. You know, my sister, she's an older girl. She's kind of like you know, she's a bit more like I think I'm the ghetto version of her, if you want to call it that. She's a bit more like you know, poshy and kind of polite and whatnot. Whereas I can be polite, but I can also be like you know, why are you looking at me like this, please? Because I'm from South London. <laughs> um, so I guess on this particular night, um, I remember exactly what I was wearing because that's why my, I guess my sentence makes no sense to me, really. I remember I was wearing a full, like a white dress. Um, white, white dress is the key word, white dress. And I had a like a weave. I used to wear loads of weave back then, which I don't wear anymore. And I'll tell you that why later. But um, my sister had mentioned that she was going to say 
I have a hello to this lady who knows my mom and I can I saw her like I watched her walk away and I remember thinking ain't they the girls that don't like her on the other side and as she walked away she wouldn't have seen this but I saw the girls kind of drift closer and closer so it was like by the time she was now coming back she would have had to pass them in order to come back to where I was standing. So they were deliberately going to block her off. That's what that's what you expected or anticipated. Yeah, 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 that's what I I could see it, and it was just, you know, it was just it was just weird, and I really didn't. I thought it was just going to be like a little girl girl thing. They have a little like word mouth here, like a word cuss here, whatever, and then it, we just move on and think, oh, that was a bit weird. But actually, that's not what happened. You know, I could see kind of like conversation happening, like, and you know, you can see hands being raised and stuff like this, but I couldn't hear. We're in a nightclub, so I don't know what was being said. Um, and then it just happened. Like, I just remember one girl kind of grabbing my sister's head, and it, there was three of them, and my sister's there. And I remember for a while just thinking, um, surely security's going to come now, you know, security know us, like, something's going to happen, right? And it just didn't. It didn't happen. And I don't know how long. I watched for to be honest but eventually I did walk over there and it's so crazy because I walked there I didn't run there I didn't like you know it wasn't like I'm gonna run here and do something I literally walked over there because it again I still thought this can't be real like it, I guess maybe in a way I probably hoped that by the time I reached there it would have stopped but that wasn't the case and I remember I had um I was, was drinking champagne and I had a glass of champagne and I remember tapping the girl and I don't know why, I don't know, when, you fought, when you've been drinking or you, you're out of it and people pour water on you, like you wake up a little bit. Like So in my head, I thought that if I pour the alcohol on her, she might be like, oh shit, what's going on, you know? But that didn't actually happen. What's that? That didn't actually happen. Um, and then I remember trying to tap her again and it was kind of like she just would look at me and then just kind of carry on and all the other two girls are just around just doing what they're doing. So what are you saying? You, pour, you poured a, your glass of champagne over yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that made sense. In in my head, it made sense at the time. Where did he pour over her head, over her back, shoulder? On her, like on in her face, just to wake her up. Yeah, I was like, look, stop doing this. Like it was really weird because I I didn't go on go there with anger. I was I still really thought it was actually a joke <laughs> to be honest. Um, and the rest of that is more like at the end of it, I can't. I feel like I just blacked out because I can't remember everything after that moment, but. I know for a fact that on the CCTV, it looks like, you know, from the glass, when I poured the glass, the, the champagne on her, it looks like I hit her once, stop, and then hit her again, when actually that's not what I done, even though you can see them still on my sister, like my sister's in the middle of these girls, and you can see still see them. I only hit one of the girls. I didn't hit, I'm not Hulk, I didn't beat up with three women, and, you know, I, I hit one of them. Um, and I would honestly say that I, I hit her, really badly um I just remember someone pushing me off of her and that was when I kind of snapped out of like what's happened and I was kind of looking for my sister and realizing she's she's over that side all these girls are on that side but I, I still weren't seeing everything clearly I just remember people telling me that I have to run they were like you have to run now the police is coming and I'm like but you don't run from the police if you if you're not guilty and I said I didn't do anything wrong they attacked us and everyone's like, yeah, but Brenda, you really, you really, like, you, you beat her up really bad, Brenda. And I was like, yeah, but they attacked us. Isn't there cameras here? Like, can this not be shown? And I still remember people just trying to get me out of this space and kind of trying to push me out another exit. And 
you know, and I just was confused, Steve. I'm not going to lie. I just kept saying to him, it doesn't make sense to run. It doesn't make sense to run because if I run, then I'm, they're going to come for me. Obviously, like there's cameras. This is not like I did it. If I think that if I was, if I'd gone out on a night out to have a fight with this particular girl, firstly, I don't think I would have worn a white dress. Secondly, I don't think I would have put a wig on. And thirdly, I would have probably ran as soon as I hit her because I wouldn't have been drinking at all. I wouldn't have been out there to have a night out. I would have been out there waiting for somebody to fight. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's different. Had you ever been? Had you ever been in a fight before? Was this your first experience? No, I'd had like fights younger, like in school. I was attacked by some girl in secondary school that ripped out half of my hair, like through my braids and stuff. Um, and that was an ongoing fight that had kept on happening and stuff. And then I think I ended up having to report her to the teachers because it was, you know, we. I grew up in it. You know, you don't snitch, you know. So at this point, I had to because I was starting to get really angry and thinking that she was going to come and find me every time I leave school. And that was probably the kind of one serious fight that I had, and that was in school, and we all got written up and whatever. And that was it, really. Um, I didn't, I didn't, to be honest, I didn't need to have fights when I was growing up, because, again, I had brothers and, you know, boys that looked out for me, that if anything was to go wrong, they'll just, they'll show up. I'll be honest with you, one serious fight that could have happened was in Woodridge Town Centre, because a group of guys kind of attacked us, me and my friend at the time, and I was trying to calm it down. But at, this is when the you know boys were starting to get a bit more brave, and they wanted to they would slap girls if they feel like it. And I wasn't the kind of girl that you can just come and say stuff to and not you, and then I'll keep quiet. I was not that girl. So luckily enough, as I was talking and the guy was kind of getting closer to me, all I remember is one boy showing up, and when I turned around, it was um, my best friend Derek's good friend, and he was like, "This is." what are you doing you know and he just took me away and they that was it that was the end of the fight so I've never really been let, let me put it this way when I was younger I remember my mum and my older sister had gone out and um one of her um, my mum's friends like had a drinking problem and she got really drunk and started to fight everybody in the in the in the bar that they were in and um when this happened the girls that were there that were younger they started attacking my mom because they thought she was trying to hit the woman but she was actually just trying to help her so my older sister then got involved and it was this big thing I was not there all I remember is they came home and told me and I was like oh my god like I could have helped what what, what? they were like Brenda you you was gonna help what are you gonna do what are you gonna do just start smiling at people like that was literally my mom was like you're not gonna do nothing you know so for me to react like this I think, again, it's all the extra issues that I was holding on to before and not really accepting that I had these issues and not even trying to address them. Because when I got arrested, you know, the, I remember the policewoman talking to me very calmly. So you, so you, did, so you did stay put? You oh, yeah, stay I stayed. Yeah, I, went, yeah. I went out the main, um, the main entrance, the, first, the main entrance, so that I can, because the police was right there, so I went out the main entrance and... I remember the police walking up to me and the woman actually said to me, um, can I talk to you? And, you know, it's like, I'm not hiding anything. I've, I've, I've been in a fight. My clothes are all torn up. I've got fucking bloody all this here, blood from me, blood from her. Like every, everyone is, everyone is a mess. Like I could have said, oh, I couldn't say it was, it wasn't me. Like it's right here. And I, w I really wanted to explain my case really, to be honest with you. And I started to, and I just remember the officer saying, I'm going to have to hold you under arrest for GBH. And I just thought, what? G but like, don't you go to prison for that? And uh, she was like, well, you haven't really been charged, but that's what I'm arresting you for. And she, like, 
I think she saw the the pain in my face in that moment because she was very, very like caring towards me. She didn't. How old were you on the at the time? I don't, I don't want to re relive the the case or the the details of the, the circumstances necessarily, but I, th- I think it's it's important to to know a couple of things. What you you say you've been drinking champagne? Were you drunk? Were you off your face at the time? No, no. I wish I was because then I could have blamed it on alcohol. But no, I wasn't. I wasn't a drinker, Steve. And GBH. I mean, what were the extent of the injuries on the uh, the other person? Uh, she had like cuts to her face. That's the truth. Yeah, and you sustained some injuries yourself as well by the sound Yeah, of it. like I got some cuts to my hands and stuff. But it was probably that was probably from me fighting her, to be honest. I don't think that she done that to me. Um, so I think any injuries that I did get were because I fought this, this, this woman. To be honest, I was 20. These women were like, you know, 30s, like late 30s and stuff. So they were a lot older than me. <laughs> it just didn't make any sense. And was your sister actually sort of injured during the, the scuffle or the fight as well? Yeah, she had a few injuries to her face, um, not serious injuries, because I think by the time I got there, they, they I think, I, I, think I, I messed up the plan that they had, because if I wasn't there, I think that it would have just been three on one, and my sister's not, she wouldn't have really fought back, because I think she's grown out of stuff like that at the time. I'm 20, like, I'm finally out in a nightclub, and, you know, I think in a way, it was like, this is my older sister. I had just got them back. I just got my family back in this little family cocoon that I once had after this crazy, you know, 17 to, you know, 18, 19, 20, not having them. And then I finally got them back. And I think in that moment, it just felt like my family was being ripped away from me again. And I think I was fighting for that family bond. I was fighting for that family connection. Sounds a bit like you you, you sort of snapped in the heat of the moment. Or may, maybe chucking, I don't know, maybe chucking a glass of champagne in someone's face wasn't... Wasn't. wasn't the best, I know. Wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't the coolest approach. It wasn't maybe, the coolest. Yeah. It wasn't at all, Steve. Trust me, I know. I, I, I think about it and I just think, however, like, what other ways could I have thought to do this? Like, it's just... I, and I even sometimes think, like, what would happen now if I was in that situation? But... The way I think now is there's certain things that kind of come and I can see them happening, Steve. Like, it's like I feel it. Like, it's really, I don't know if it's the fear of being back in prison or, you know, ever being in a courtroom again for committing a crime. But there's stuff like, I'm that person now that, you know, when we're in the pub and someone does something or says something a bit, I'm like, you know, you if you, you can end up in prison if you take this further. And they always look at me like, Brenda, you always kill the party. I'm like, but it's the truth. Like, I didn't know. I wish people told me, you know, the amount of people that I knew had got into fights worse than mine, by the way. How old are you now, Brenda? I am turning 33. Jesus 33. Christ. I'm just thinking of you. So 20, 33. So you got many more years experience, a lot more self-awareness of, of life and emotions and all that sort of stuff. I mean, as a 20-year-old, having lived the life you'd lived, you were, I suppose, your emotions were, were were stretched at that particular point, and you were immature, weren't you? You know, it's not that's not in a derogatory way, but you were immature. We'd all be immature at seven. Hundred percent, twenty rather. Hundred yeah. percent. I think it was. Um, I think the realization of the fact that I was I could possibly go to prison was what broke me. It, it, it's what completely broke Brenda. Um, so what was the process? I mean, were you put in a holding cell that evening? Were you? Yes, I was. I was put in. A, um, I went to the police station. Um, I think it was Peckham Police Station or somewhere in, in a crap in a like Southwark area or something like that. That must have been an eye opener for you. Oh, um, that I think 
should have really prepared me for prison a little bit, but it didn't. It just made me so scared. Um, when you're in a cell, you lay down on this blue thing, this blue, I mean, it's called a mattress, but is it really a mattress? I don't know. And you look up and at the top of the ceiling, I remember it says, are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? And I remember reading that over and over and over again and re like replaying what happened, what I could have done different, you know, really and truly, I think my solicitor was trying to tell me no comment, but I was really like, no, but this is what happened and did it, like trying to explain until, you know, it looked like it wasn't going in my favour and my solicitor was like, you just have to say no comment. And I just started saying no comment and that's, you know, I have never been in this situation before. Like, I don't know all these stuff because I think the officer said something, you know, if you don't say something now... You know, and then you try to use it later, you said no comment, we're going to... And I, I remember looking at the solicitor, like, what... But I need to explain what's happened, you know, this is not... This is not just a random... I didn't come out to do this, but they let me go that, um, the next... Because we was in a club, so it would have been about four o'clock in the morning. And then I got left, let out about maybe after one, two o'clock. Um, my sister came and picked me up. I'll be honest, I think the whole going into probation for like a pre-sentencing report is what, which you ha what you have to do when you've been charged. And shout out to my then probation officer, Dan Danny. He, he, he was great. Um, I think what happened is all the stuff that I tried to just break down now as a child, try to kind of like say it in small snippets, in probation, your pre-sentencing report, you have to just tell him how you are, how you've been, where you was born, what you've been through. And I don't know if I'd ever done that. I don't know if I'd ever spoke to anybody about what I'd actually been through. And I think he realised that because when I started talking, I didn't stop and I just started crying and, you know, mentioning things that had happened to me that I'd never told anybody and, you know, everything that had been happening and, you know, my relationships and all this stuff and losing my family and he kind of put his pen down because I think he must have thought, I don't know how to put this all in writing, you know. Um, and I remember him saying to me, I'll be honest with you, Brenda, like, have you ever spoke to anybody about any of this? And I said, no, we, we don't we don't talk about stuff like this. You just carry on. I'm the happy person. I, I'm, I'm OK. And he was like, yeah, but you're not OK because what you just told me doesn't reflect the stuff that you do. Because at the time I was studying, well, I was trying to become a childminder. Um, so I've done it with a cancel, went through the courses and then basically they do a, a home visit. So I had the first set of home visit where you have like, even if you know that, like, say, for example, you don't have the child gates. I had like st um, posted stamps all around the house going that maybe needs to move. This needs to, a gate. This needs that. And I passed that first stage. Um, I was so, so excited. And she was like, look, I see no reason why, you know, you should have any issues I'm gonna set the next appointment and it will be with Ofsted and Ofsted will come and do the inspection but after that I think you're off you're you're good to go and then literally after that visit I think about a week later or so this when I got into this fight you know um so what a shame because you had a bright you know bright future right ahead of you didn't you <laughs> I went to school went to college I done everything and that's what the probation officer was confused about because he was like usually so half of the stuff people out of character yeah he said but if you had come in to come to me at the age of 13 if you'd committed a crime at the age of 13 you know based on, off of what i know of you i kind of would have looked at you as like another case that yeah this kind of makes sense why she's here but you've carried on what you've done is like all these things have happened to you but you've just carried on like nothing's happened and i'm like yeah but i, I can't like who do i like what, what i don't understand like what do you do um so yeah, I, I, he, he basically said that in his statement, he said that I think that she should get um, 
community service um, and given some kind of like um, anger management skills and training um, and some therapy. Obviously, that's not what happened. I went to court. Um, it was like a year, I think. So I got arrested at 20 and then I went to prison at 21. So you were on bail that whole period, were you? Yeah, yeah, I was on bail. And I think... So did you, did you have to turn up every so often with your probation officer? Probation, court um, hearings and stuff. Um, some When it got closer to... Because I, my first hearing was in a magistrate's, then it got sent to a crime court, and that's when everything went left. Um, and I started having to pack a bag to go to court. Like They were like, pack a bag with all your essentials and stuff. Did your solicitor ever lead you to think that you could be sent down for what was ultimately was over two years, wasn't it? I think the sentence, two, yeah, two and a half she years. She told me that I was looking at a three to five year sentence. Um, and at the time that I think, to be honest with you, prison itself, that story is a whole nightmare. But the thought of looking at a three to five year sentence at the age of 21, that completely shut me down to who I was because I then started to think, well, if I'm going to go to prison for being violent, then who cares? I might as well just be violent. I've been quiet all this time. I've let people walk all over me. I've allowed people to just, you know, take the piss out of me because I just wanted to be this polite person. And now who cares? So I started drinking a lot, heavily, like heavily drinking. Before I'd get tipsy and I'm like, oh, that's it now. I didn't have that anymore during bail. I didn't have a limit. I didn't have, oh, I'm drunk. I need to stop. I didn't have that. I'll just get drunk and cuss anybody that I can find. Where were you living during this period? Here. I've lived here. Um, in this flat okay. unfortunately um, before and after and yeah I just I just went out and would do craziness like I'd go out like it would start off really nice and calm and I'd look really pretty and then by the end of the night you know someone would say something to me and I'll just go off like completely go off to the point that I think even my family was just at, getting at the point where they were worried for me that they were scared you know that I was losing my was mind. Was this a deliberate thing on your part? I, 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 when I say deliberate I mean, you you knew you were doing it and you didn't give a shit. Deliberate, or I were think, you going out of your way to be obnoxious? <laughs> I think I think it was just I didn't know how to handle what was going on um, and drinking because everybody drank anyway. It's like nobody really realised that I was drinking because I was just so upset. Like yeah, so, dead, dead in the pain. Yeah, like it was just a weird thing. Like it was just a weird. It was a weird part, um, a weird time, and I think. By the time that I got sentenced, I had already been broken. So it, it going to prison was like, yeah, right, cool. Like, because now I'm broken. I'm, whatever confidence I had, whatever plans or dreams I ever had before this whole situation happened, you know, for me, it was like, well, what was the point? What was the point of going to college? What was the point of going to sixth form? What was the point of applying for university? What was the point of anything? You know, what was the point of going to work experience? I went to work experience at Virgin Trains because I wanted to get away I wanted to travel you know and so I pushed as soon as I'd done that work experience I knew that I had to do leisure and tourism in order to get into that kind of industry you know past that and then went on to tourism management so I was I had a goal and I was doing it even though I had extra things going on I was still trying to stick to that but by the time this whole sentence came up it was like that's gone out of the window like qualifications only last for a certain period of time as well you have to use them otherwise you have to do access courses in order to kind of support you. Um, yeah. Were you were you as pissed off with yourself as you were with the system that sent you down? I mean, were you disappointed with yourself and and with with your behaviour? That led, I mean, obviously you accepted 
you'd done wrong. Otherwise, you wouldn't have hung around and, you know, as, as it were, handed yourself in. He's not like you, you ran from it. But were you, were you bitterly disappointed deep down that you, you'd let yourself down and your family down? If I'm honest with you, I, I was only upset with myself. I wasn't upset with anybody else. Um, and I, I realised that because when I was in jail, you know, now I'm a poet, but all of that writing started from in prison because of just simply understanding that I was no longer a kind of part of society. I was this new part of this next community that is kind of non-existing to the rest of the world. Like you people in people out here don't know what goes I would I couldn't tell you I knew what went on in a prison if before jail. I couldn't tell you that. Um so I, I kind of started writing some stuff and I'll be honest with you, all the stuff that I wrote was just towards myself like how dare you what's wrong with you You ruined your life like you had a good life you worked very hard why did you do this to yourself it was literally blaming me I blamed nobody else I didn't even blame the justice system for sending me away from my first ever offense I just I literally just was blaming me Brenda because I felt like I had let me down you know in that time of being in prison when I when I think about even more after jail is the fact that I came out of prison by December 2009 and by April 2010 my best friend was dead you know so that's a year that I could have had longer with him but I didn't because I was why, in jail. Why, why, why did that happen? He had like a cancerous thing that they okay. took it a very long time yeah. yeah they took it they didn't know though he didn't know about it um it was just sudden because he was the healthiest guy I knew like honestly. So, that, so again that's a guilt playing on you Exactly. You've, waste, you've wasted valuable time when you could exactly. have been with your mate. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, all of that, I guess. So how did this this writing, because obviously this is what you do now, this this poetry, Lady Unchained. How do, <laughs> she's smiling again now. So, <laughs> so Sorry to take you to places you don't particularly want to go to. But but it's it's important for the, uh, for the listeners to understand where, where you are now, how you got to where you are now. What was your writing project? Had you written anything before when you, when you were on the outside? Besides, like... I guess everyone done English. Sounds like essays for school and things. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like yeah English. Like you know, like I, I remember writing, and I only thought about this recently. Actually, I wrote one poem in school, which we had to write a poem. And I remember the reason I remember this poem is because I wrote it in like a heart shape. So I wrote the poem going around and around in heart and all the all the way, and then we stuck it to balloons and let these balloons go. I don't know what it was for. I don't remember why we'd done it, but I remember doing that, and that was probably the only time that I wrote poetry that I can say. Um, in prison, again, I didn't believe I was writing poetry. I really did not think I was writing poetry. I just thought, I need to not get in any more trouble. I need to stay very clean in this place because I need to get out of this place. Um, and that took me a long time to even to even admit because, to be honest, when I got to prison, I, I wanted to end everything. I was like, this is it. That's it. This is where I die. My life is over. That's it now. Finished. You know, I had to... They had to really look look over me a little bit because I think they probably was worried about me. But to be honest, it was a simple thing like in prison, they give you this mill. They give you a form that you fill out basically, right? And this form has the mill that you can any... Basically, you pick what you want to eat the next day, right? And I remember thinking, what? In prison? You get an option <laughs> for the a menu? Like, I was really like, what? Like, I guess it's not that bad. Like, you know, it's... <laughs> 
<laughs> it's like just small things like that because you know I don't know prisons so I was like okay let me fill out this form and I looked at all the options and you have like your whatever starter that you want you can then you get like your main and you they sometimes give you a cake or fruit or whatever so you pick. yeah I'm guessing it wasn't like prawn cocktail starters <laughs> no, or no, no, steak no. <laughs> no this is Holloway okay like this yeah. is not like I remember Holloway is the place that I got offered a kebab right on my first day on my first day in prison I remember this lady said to me, do you want me to make something to eat? Because I was shaking, I was crying. And I, I was so embarrassed that I was crying because I, I knew automatically that made me weak to all the other women. Um, so I was trying to pretend I weren't crying, but it was too late. And she offered me a kebab. And I said to her, a kebab? And she said, yes, my daughter, you can have a kebab. And I said, a kebab? And she said, yes, you could. Get, I can make it for you. And I remember looking at her thinking... Is this a trick? And what do I owe this woman for this kebab that she's telling me she can make me? You know, and she then came out with it and she said, you know, it's not like outside kebab, but it's kebab. And I remember looking at this kebab, Steve, and I thought, I'm definitely in jail because this is not a kebab. It's not it one you're never, familiar with. <laughs> not one I've never seen a kebab like that in my life. Right. So when I ordered my food, I was shocked to come to get my food because I had to go to medication and the medication line is also a long line because there's, you know, people on methadone scripts and, you know, people that want to see what medication you're taking so they can, you know, kind of Do see how they can. You. Yeah. But I'm <laughs> so this is all me learning stuff. So I ended up trying to be the last person at the, the, the line because I just thought, you know, I don't want anyone to even see me go to the medication things so and then they know I'm getting some kind of medication. And so by the time that happened, I finished late, ran over to go and get my meal. And lo and behold, my food's not there, Steve. I said, what do you mean? You, you asked me to fill out a form. I filled it out. I gave it to you on time. My, why is my food not here? And this is to another inmate. But I remember the officer standing there and she said to me, this is not, an, this is not a hotel. I remember looking at her going, well, bloody hope not. Because if I paid my money to stay here and you brought me here, I, I would definitely ask for a refund. And she looked at me and was like, you cannot talk to me like that. And I was like, but I'm just saying if like, this is, I know this is not a hotel. Like, I mean, you know, so I kept going on and she started, well, you're going to get written up. And that was the first time I heard written up. And I'm like, what? She's like, do you know, we can write you up for this. And I'm like, write me up for you guys not having my meal. I don't, can I write you up? Like, I was very confused. <laughs> like, you know, um, and that's when I learned everything in jail that you say, do, is has an effect on when you get out, what privileges you have, you know, everything. It has to everything, everything. So I started writing these notes that the officer told me off and they're the ones that didn't have my meal. How could she, you know, or, you know, the, the girls on the landing um, think I'm mad because I've got my own cell. You know, it, it grew as I moved, as I grew in prison, because obviously I, I got confidence. I started working at reception in Holloway. Then I got transferred from Holloway and that's when things went crazy because I'd learnt my routine and I remember that particular officer that didn't or I didn't think she liked me and I decided I didn't like her either we'd slowly started to kind of bond because all the other girls like Brenda she's actually a really nice officer but you sort of just got off on the wrong foot and I was like I just don't like her I just don't like her um but eventually I think because she realized I wasn't trouble um I was really not trouble and I think she realized that very quickly because you know, as soon as I, I could do education, I was like, you know, what can I do in prison that I can't do outside right now? You know, what, what could I do like what in this time? And I, at first I, I thought, oh, knitting. Oh, well, where else would I learn to knit? I might as well learn to knit now. <laughs> <laughs>
Just what a 20-year-old does from Greenwich. You know, you know, just just knit. Like, I was thinking, you know, when I get out, maybe I could just start my little collection of things, you know, thinking ahead. Um, I, I completely got over that in the end because I, I found out that you can do A-level English. And I thought, oh, that A-level English, why not? You know, I've done GCSE English, why not? And I remember signing up and it was this uh, a black lady, um, quite older lady, and she said to me, I want you to write a story about going to jail. And I thought, how dare you? Like, like I'm in jail. You told me to write a story about going to jail. That's not fair. But actually, once I put pen to paper, I could not stop writing. Um, and she was like, time's up. She read it through and kind of told me, I'm a good writer. But she said, oh, your grammar's all a mess, though. And she said, your A's look weird. I don't know if it's an E, an A, an O, you know. And so she corrected me. And then she said, you can do the exam. So I started that. And I actually passed, you know. And I think that officer saw because she, you know, they give your mail and I remember her bringing it in to me, which usually they just kind of dash your, throw your post wherever on the floor, some put it on the bed, whatever. But I remember her walking into the room and actually giving me this um, envelope and she was like, well done, congratulations. I was like, for what? And she was like, you passed your um, A-level English. I was like, oh, really? And she was like, yeah, I'm really proud of you. And I was like, oh, thank you. It's just thought something, you know, what can I do that I can't do now outside, you know? Um, so I'd done that and I was kind of settling in and then the transfer came. <laughs> See now the transfer part is where my life in prison became a little bit more hectic. Um, where did you go? Where did they move you to? They moved me to a place called Morton Hall. Um, Morton Hall has recently been in the, 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 the news um, because it's now a, a detention centre and there, there's been talks about closing it down. Um, which, to be honest, it should. They called it a detention centre now. When I was there, they called it a female prison. I can guarantee you that it was a detention centre for females, uh, not a prison. And I remember you get a knock at the door and they, the night before your transfer, so you don't know because obviously people might try to escape and stuff. Um, and they knocked on the door and they had told me, you're going to Morton Hall in the morning, you need to pack your stuff. And I remember saying to the officer, Miss, I'm not, I'm not for a national, I'm British. And I know that's a foreign national prison. And she was like, well, that's where you're meant to be going. It's come up. That's where you're going. And I said, well, I think, I think there's been a mistake, you know. Um, and she said, if I refuse to go, um, I'll get sent to the block, which is like SEG. Um, and you get, you don't want to go to the block. I mean, my prison cell that I was in felt like the block already. I felt like I was limited already. So to go to the block, everything else gets taken away. So it's like, I'd rather not. Um, and I think the fear of going to the block overweighed the fact that this is I shouldn't be going to this place. And so I packed my stuff and I remember all the women kind of coming to their windows and, and kind of shouting at the window trying to talk to me through the door and the windows and, because they knew I wasn't meant to go there. And we had all known everybody else that had gone there was actually, you know, had some kind of, they didn't have a British passport or did, that just had like lived to them, didn't have all the paperwork, right? Or, or I guess that's what I was told. Um, and I remember I'd stayed in contact with some of them women and they had written to me while they were in that place and I knew that there was things that they could not say in the letter um, but what they were saying was that they just hoped that I didn't have to come there and lo and behold I'm sent to this place it's in Lincolnshire 
Lincolnshire, next to Manchester. So I'm not exactly close for visiting, is it? I mean, South London, Lincolnshire, it doesn't make any sense. Like, it doesn't. I mean, the journey itself was at least two to three hours long, which in in a in a sweat box in the van that they take you in is so uncomfortable. Like, and you know, yeah, you're an inmate, so you don't have the right to be comfortable. But like, sure, surely, even just a human being, just a human, would need at least to stop somehow. Do you know what I mean? It's just straight, it's a lot. But I got to this place and I knew straight away, and this is going to sound really crazy because I've done, I've been talking about it and done little kind of Instagram stuff about it recently. But I knew as soon as I got to this prison that there was a problem. Now, everyone always laughs when I say this, but when we got to the prison, the waiting area was carpeted just like how my house is carpeted, like full, nice coloured carpet, like no, st- no stains, nothing. The seating arrangement was sofas. I'm talking leather sofas, cushions, comfortable like my sofas I have in my house, okay? Magazines on the side that were up to date. Now that is the key. Up to date magazines. You can just about get them in, in, in a hospital waiting room. Okay? I was going to say, you don't get those in a doctor's <laughs> surgery. <laughs> so of course, I'm like, something is wrong here. I remember there was these two other ladies that I didn't even notice were in the van with me. But they were white. To me, they looked like white women. So I was confused. I was like, why did they bring white people to the foreign national prison? Like, you know, I found out that one of them, has, actually, she was Russian. And the other one was South African born. But she's lived here all her life. Like, yeah. Um, so I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I'm not actually British, British. So, okay, cool. And so we got taken to our wing, which is the induction wing. And you have a key. You have a key to your door. You, it's not like in Holloway where you have to wait for the officers to come and lock you because the way it's set up, you don't have a toilet in your cell. So the toilet and showers are in a separate place. So you have to come out of your room to go to the shower. So they give you this key. And I remember thinking, how crazy is it that they give us a key? Because you've got to think, Steve, in prison, a key is the symbol of freedom. So to give somebody a key, for me, only made me feel like they were mocking me. I felt like there was something seriously wrong with this prison. To give me a key and tell me that I've got some kind of freedom, something's wrong. And as soon as I started to think that, when you arrive in prison, you get that you're given this form. This form has all your information, your name, your date of birth, any middle names that you have you know, your conviction, how long you've got, when you can possibly be released. You also get given your er, your possible early release date. So some people, if you are like good behavior and you, you can't get tagged, um, what happens is they give you 14 days early release if you've been on good behavior. So all of those dates are, everything is there, tag, whatever, all of it's there. When I got to this prison, there was nothing. Like there was no tag, there was no weekend releases, there was no nothing and I, I remember saying to the officer I'm sorry I think there's been some kind of mistake um I should be um able to get weekend release at a certain period of my sentence and it's not here and she said oh well just sign it if it's wrong we'll fix it closer to the date I said no 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 I don't sign paperwork that's wrong that doesn't make sense to me why would it why would I sign it and she said well it's probably just been a mistake I said well then correct it I'm not going to sign it if it's wrong and I remember from that moment I basically became disobedient to the officers you know because I'm not listening to what they're telling me to do but any normal person that can read English would not sign that because they know the documents is wrong if you get a package today and it says this person's name you don't even know who that is I'm not taking it it could be anything you know if that's found in my house then well you signed for it didn't you 
you understand there's many things and so i refused and that was when things got complicated because in the week induction i think most prisons the week induction i remember them talking about diversity all the diversity officers were white officers but there were so many foreign national people here and i didn't understand this um and so i started talking to a few white girls and i said are you you're we're british ain't you no like yeah i'm from manchester and i'm like oh is that why you're in this prison? Did you request to come here? And they said, yeah, I requested to come here because it's closer to my family. And I was like, oh, yeah, it makes sense because you're from Manchester. That makes sense. So in my head, I thought, okay, well, if they've asked to come here, then I can ask to leave because it's not close to my family, right? That's, that sounds logical, Brenda. Sounds very <laughs> logical, right? So lo and behold, I put in a, you know, they, they said to me, they said to us in the induction, if you want a transfer, all you do is put in a transfer request and that's what happens. We take the next steps from there. And so I did as I was told, put in a transfer request, told him why I want to uh, move to that, uh, a prison back in like London. Um, I asked to go to Send or Downview, which are in like Surrey. That's all right for me. Um, and the response that I got is based off of, so I have a poem called Dear Pierre Foley on YouTube. Um, and that poem is basically me replying to the letter that I got. I've I've watched that on YouTube, <laughs> and the, the the musical version with your uh, your band. The band, group, which, yeah, they were the amazing. band is really good. I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I love them. yeah, is that your own sort of a house band, as it were? Yeah. So that was from my producer Alex, who helps me make my music. That was his friends, and then they kind of heard my stuff, and they were like, "We wanna." We want to work with you so I, I got to work with them for about I think about six months maybe longer um but they've all gone and done separate stuff now and yeah. married and I mean personally I, I I like the music as well as well as the um the, the poetry the music is really is my my sort of thing but it's a sort of rock yeah as opposed to, as opposed to the sort of heavy straight grime rappy right sort of stuff. This, this is, is more, it this is more rock of this sort of war of the worlds type Jeff right? Wayne style I really like that I really loved it and I really hope that um I really hope that, you know, my friend Gareth, who actually reads out P.O. Foley's um, letter, I hope that I can, because we want to make, we want to perform, I've, I've never performed it again since that, that day, so I want to perform it with him because the music, that's his music, he made that track for P.O. Foley. Like, that's he, really good, they're good musicians, you can tell that as well. Absolute yeah. legends, so yeah, they, yeah, hopefully we can... Get that pure so P.O. Foley, Prison Officer Foley, is that, yeah. a, is that a real character, real name? It's a real name. That... Yeah, yeah it's oh, a wow. real name. It's a real name because um, he knew mine and he signed the letter, signed P.O. Foley. You said you're coming for him when you get out. I did. Um, and that's because he made me feel so, so small. Being in a foreign national prison, I admit I am African, but until I got to prison, I didn't realise I had to automatically just tell people I was African because I've always just said I'm British or where are you from, South London? Like, it, it's just been the thing. I never, it's like I got forced to just be African, which I, I, I'm not complaining about. What do you mean it, What do you mean by that, forced to be African? I mean, because you're, you're African, bought a heritage, you're born in Africa, but you're a British citizen. What, what, what does that mean, so being forced to? What, what's funny is being British in that prison is a luxury being african in that prison is a sentence there's a difference if you're african in that prison you don't get treated the right way you don't get treated like a british inmate so you don't have the privileges that a british inmate should have but i have a british passport so for me it was like all they were focusing on was the fact that i was born in uganda and didn't care for anything else because when i 
what the letter had said to me was that basically I can meet people that speak the same language as me if English is not my first language. They told me that they have officers that meet the needs of foreign national meet, um, needs. Now, there was not even one black officer in that prison. Like, there was no officer there. Did you tell them you've got an English A-level? Uh, I, I mean, uh, it would be on my file. It would yeah. be on my file, but they don't... This is the thing, this is what I'm saying. With that prison, I don't think they focus on anything else apart from where you was born. Because in prison, any application, anyone that's been to jail can tell you, application can take up to a week. It could even take longer. I put in this application in the morning after I wrote that letter to him saying, how could you say... I need to speak, meet people that speak the same English as me, that I'm writing to you in English. This guy, in my head, I thought maybe because of my grammar still not correct, I went and got a dictionary from the library just to reply to his letter because I felt that small and I didn't want to make any mistakes in it. And I still probably did because I was so angry. But I put that letter response back to him the morning, went to work, and by lunchtime, I was told, go to that office, Pierre Foley's here to speak to you. And he was there, you know, attitude, everything, you know, telling me, who do I think I am to talk to him the way that I spoke to him in this letter? And I said, well, I don't understand. All I did was answer each question and each statement that you made in a letter. Like, for example, foreign national officers, where are they? You're all white. I'm black. I don't understand. If that's if you're saying that this is why I need to be here, then show me why I need to be here. You know, you're telling me that, you know. Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or you meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger, just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. So we're back, rec- we're back recording here. We just had a weird blowout. I'm not entirely sure what happened. So mind- mindful that we've been running for a fair while, Brenda. Oh, no. You obviously had this problem with uh, P.O. Foley. And, yes. Uh, situa- How long were you actually in um, this place? To be honest, Steve, I don't know because I just remember being on a hunger strike for what felt like forever. Oh, seriously? I didn't know you were on hunger like strike. Like I went on hunger strike because of the fact that they had refused to, to move me because they were saying that I wasn't British, even though immigration had already cleared me and said I was British. And eventually my mum brought my passport in and they looked at it and, you know, immigration was like, I don't even know why you was forced to bring her passport in. We already cleared her as a British citizen. So it was just, I guess Pierre Foley must have just had a personal vendetta against me for some whatever reason. And yeah, I finally left there and went to Downview, which I guess to to everybody else, I probably looked like a suck up, like one of them, oh, oh, thank you, miss. Yes, miss. Yes, sir. Thank you. Because I was just so happy to be around officers that were just officers that are doing their job, not, you know, finding something to you know hold against me or anything you know I even laughed with officers in Downview it was it was like a whole um different thing what I could say in Martin Hall though one officer in particular kind of saw what was going on and she tried her hardest to make me feel a little bit better by actually giving me visits because my visits were all being turned down and she managed to sort it all out for me so I knew that there was someone that had a heart in that place but when I got to Downview it was like everybody had a heart everybody was just and they were all from like London sides and like from ends so it's like they spoke like me you know we cracked jokes and yeah it was I think there was when I I kind of started to find myself again and obviously I've gone to Downview skinny I mean I was like the way my my little my younger sister's just turned 24 and she said uh to me recently when we was talking about that particular Morton Hall and she said what you don't know is that all the other prisons it was fine we'll come to visit you we'll leave we're happy like we obviously we're not happy that you're there but you you was fine um but in that place 
every time we left you, like, mum would cry her eyes out because she really thought you was going to die there. She said, because Brenda, I've never seen you that skinny in my whole life. Like, I was literally so skinny that all the clothes that my mum had sent in didn't even fit me because I, they just fell off of me, you know. So to go to Downview and be, you know, I guess free and have, like, actually start eating again, I joined the gym course, which I didn't plan. And yeah, I think I started to get a bit more. So my writing, like things that I was writing, that like, was more like finally out of this, you know, you would think up, I, you'd think that going to Downview was my release date. Like it was like I was released back into the community. Honestly. You felt you were back on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I started to kind of write a little bit more, I guess, of understanding who I was and, you know, where I'd actually gone wrong. And I, I prayed a lot more. I started to get my faith. I was a, kind of a, in when I was like 13, like 11, up until 13, 14, I was in the choir. So I used to sing church choir songs. I, I, I um, taught Sunday school for a little bit and done like music with the kids because I realised I was so young being in church that I was bored. So I thought if I was bored... And the kids younger than me are definitely bored. And I decided to start this new project with them. And so I started praying a lot, which I guess led to my writing becoming more faithful and a bit more kind of spiritual and kind of, I guess, identifying who I was then or trying to identify who I was then and trying to figure out who I am now in this prison setting and kind of who I will be after um, jail. And when I was in prison, because I had a victim in my crime, I had to do a course called um, Sycamore Tree. It's basically like restorative justice. Um, so you get somebody, so somebody comes into, you stack a course for a couple of weeks and you get like somebody that was um, a victim to a crime. Um, and I remember this lady came in and told us like how she was attacked. And I really, really broke down. It was what had, what had happened to her you know, was sad. Like, it was very bad. Like, you know, she was an older lady and the way she was attacked and dragged, it was just, you know, I think I, I spoke to her um, because I was taken back by it. And I remember saying to her, like, I'm so sorry, you know, having to come here and relive that. And she just wanted to know about me. Um, and I explained what I'd done. I told her I had a fight. I told her everything. And I remember one thing she said to me was, so where's the other three girls that attacked your sister? And I said, I don't know, they're out there somewhere. And she said, so only you got convicted? And I said, yeah. And I think for the first time as well, I kind of thought, yeah, only I got convicted. And she was like, well, I kind of feel like they should be here too then because you didn't fight because you didn't go out looking for a fight. You was attacked. And I remember looking at her thinking... I wish she was my judge. Like, I wish she was my judge. You know, and she she was really loving and she kind of like gave me loads of biscuits because, you know, the biscuits are for the guests. And she gave me loads of these biscuits and stuff. And she said, just do well, keep doing what you're doing, you know. And I said to her, I'm, I'm writing some stuff, so hopefully I can write something, can it? And, um, so have you got anything there for us you can you yeah, like to at read the, out? At the end of Sycamore Tree, you have to, you have to write or create some kind of something that symbolizes forgiveness or um, that how sorry you are and stuff. And in a way, I remember saying I didn't really want to write a letter to my judge. I kind of wanted to, to my judge or my victim. I wanted to write it to my younger me and my family. So some of this, there's a part here that is actually in Road to Victory, which makes sense now because I was like, where the hell did I get that from? It's from this. So Road to Victory is one of your long, longer poems. Yeah. Um, so this this piece is called um, A Thin Line Between Good and Bad. And it starts off really kind of like the younger me. So 
it says. It says, so you're bad. You took care of that, you're bad. Messed her up good, you're bad. She messed with your family. She thought she was bad. See, a good person can turn into a bad person in a matter of seconds. It ain't hard. I thought I was good. Did all the right things to say that way. But she hurt me. She hurt us. Had a good life ahead of me, so why did I destroy it? Had a beautiful future, so why let someone pull me down when I know I'm better than that? See, it's not about anger, it's about peace. It's not about hatred, it's about love. It's not about power, it's about grace. But all these things put together can turn a good person into a bad person. So when you make a mistake, make make sure you correct it because you know you're better than that mistake. Be strong and remember that you're the one thing that they're not. You're smart. Forget about the past and think about the future. Live for tomorrow, not for right now. Dry your eyes, little sister, because the pain won't last forever. Words can't scar Words can't scar you, but you scarring somebody else because of their words and their actions, now that will scar not only that person, but you and the people you love. So make a choice, live for right now or live for tomorrow. I just hope that you're able to live with that choice. As for me, well, I'm living for tomorrow. Oh, very good. And there's a lot of self-reflection there, obviously. Right. And understanding of what you've done as well, which is exactly. obviously important. Yeah. 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 So tell us a bit about the work you're doing now and obviously the uh, the Unchained Lady Unchained with the poetry. So Unchained Poetry um, is an artistic platform for artists with lived experience of the criminal justice system. And that's because I realised that my poetry was a way to kind of tell my story in a more, I guess, positive way. And I wanted others to hear that side of me because, you know, if you hear my crime, you just think, oh my God, she's terrible. She's this and she's that. But when you hear about who I really am and how I actually feel about being in prison and stuff, I am not once... I'm not once saying I feel sorry for myself. Like I openly admit that I had this fight um, and that's why I never ran. And I think that there's a lot of young people that can end up in that situation. Um, and if they're anything like me, they probably want to get out and do better. Um, and I wanted to create a platform that gives them the space to do that. So I have artists who I mentor, you know, I help them with their kind of like, we talk about the writing skills, their performance skills. And when I first had my first two artists, Usher and Sheridan, they they didn't even want to spend a minute on stage having a QA. and I said, can you just stay on stage for like two minutes so I can just t- let the people know who you are? And they were like, nope. Oh, everything is in my bars, Brenda. I put it in the bars. But now, I mean... I take them everywhere with me. You know, we've gone to the House of Lords and been invited. You know, if I get asked to perform somewhere and I know that that, that organisation already knows how I perform, I'll say, well, I'm going to give this slot to my artists and I'll introduce them. So what I'm trying to show them is everything I've done through Unchained, you know, it can take you to places, other places that you might have not even thought that you could be in. You know, so from me, they see me going to meetings, being on panels and being invited to places where they are also invited. You know, I've left them in a space. So hang on. So you've come out of prison. How do you make that jump from coming out of prison to going to the House of Lords and doing live performances? Where did the the germ of the idea come from? Do you know what? The truth is, Steve, um, the truth is after I came out of jail, I got really depressed. Like I said, my best friend passed away in 2010. Then I lost another friend, the, sec- the, the second person of my free, my little threesome. Um, and I think I completely started to just 
die. Um, and for a long time, I started to believe that everything happens in threes. And if they're the two people that I grew up with are dead, then that means I'm next. So I kind of started to get really depressed again and was really searching. Um, but then I went into my old ways of depression and drinking. I got arrested twice, never went back to prison, but I got arrested two more times. And then I, I realized how easy it is once you have a conviction to be in a situation because you can't do anything wrong. Like, don't raise your voice a certain way because it just might be that you're acting aggressive, which, you know, f known for violence, it could come across as, you know, abuse, right? Um, so anything, I realized that I need to do something. I need to find something on this earth, something in this world that I love doing so much that I cannot afford to even raise my voice to somebody for no reason. It like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I had to find one thing. And what got me angry was every time I watched the news, I would see ex-offenders re-offending, ex-offenders going back to prison. And I I, I was like, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to be that person. I'm not going to be one of those numbers that they talk about that is back in jail. I refuse because jail was never part of my journey. So... I have to stop it. It has to, I need, I need to stop this. I can't get arrested again. You know, I can't be in front of a judge because it, eventually they're going to send me back to jail if I keep doing this. You know, and I remember my solicitor who is a barrister and she's absolutely amazing. The last time we went to court, she said to me, Brenda, you have so much plans. This project that you're working on, you need to focus on that because you can help people because of what you do and who you are. You can help people. I do not want to see you again in a courtroom unless you've come to support somebody or you're here because you know you you're working with somebody and you have to be in this courtroom I don't ever want to have to represent you of course if I have to I will but I don't want to and I think that stuck with me um it stuck with me because I knew that she will do everything in her power to make sure that nothing happens to me. But if I put myself in that situation, then so she I'm... became someone you could look up to and aspire to, like a mentor almost. Hundred yeah, percent. She great. she was that person. And Fantastic. Yeah. Then I've just I started to figure out how I do this. You know, of course, as soon as I left prison, I volunteered. I've been volunteering since I left prison, and that's been something that. I wasn't forced to do. I wanted to do it because it was a way of me. I mean, I've got a criminal record. I can't get a job just like that anyway. So I need to build. I need to rebuild Brenda. I need to rebuild connections, you know, work with people that I can show that I'm good at what I do. And, you know, I did all of that. And eventually I um, found National Prison Radio. And I think that's when the real, the real, the real good news started to flow. You know, um, that's where I got my name, Lady Unchained. Um, they forget this, by the way. I, I'm surprised they haven't started taxing me or something. <laughs> you know that we gave you that name. They actually don't remember, but um, I was invited onto Outside In, which is um, f uh, recorded in broadcasting house, and I was interviewed by two hosts who were also ex-offenders, Hillary and Clinton. And I remember sitting there. Clinton. Hillary and Clinton. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but they're both boys. Hillary Clinton. No, no, not 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 the other people. We're talking yeah. UK here, guys. <laughs> um, but they were amazing. These amazing men who made me feel so comfortable. And I'll be honest with you, every the whole time I was sitting there, I was like, these are guys that went to jail and they're interviewing me. They they work here. Like you know, it was like, wow, I could do this. Maybe maybe I could do this. You know. And um, I remember they said, oh, you're a poet. 
and I thought that they would play one of my poems. I'm like, oh, can you perform one? And I was like, oh, um, like now? And they were like, yeah. And I think it was a test, but I performed um, a track called Trap Queen at the time. And I, I think I blew them away. I managed to blow them away and they were really happy. And I kind of was one of them people that, you know, all the other guests kind of went home and went about their business, but I stayed. And, you know, I was like, how can I work with you? How can I help? Anything you need, this is what I do. I'm a poet. You know, I want to work with ex-offenders and all this stuff. And I think they were fascinated about So everything seems to conspire and merge at the same time, all your loves and your passions and your interests. All at the same time in just the space of having these meetings with these guys. And I remember Phil at the time, he said to me, you're amazing, you know. And I, I, I don't know if I believed it but it was just weird that somebody else was telling me I was amazing and it, I didn't understand it but you know I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna take this amazingness and I'm gonna do something amazing that I can see um because at the time I wasn't seeing um that this was a good thing to do or whatever and I, I started to use the poetry to to kind of share that story and National Prison Radio booked me they said they called me up and they said we've got a conference coming up and we wondered if you would uh, perform some of your poems and we'll pay you. And I was like, you do what now? <laughs> like, you pay me. Um, and I'm like, yeah, it's not a lot of money. It's just 50 pounds. But, you know, and I was like, 50 pounds? I've got like three poems. That's like 50 pounds for three poems. I'm on stage for about five minutes to get 50 pounds. People have to work <laughs> to get 50 pounds, you know? Um, and I was so excited. But doing, doing something you love as well is not even work for you. Exactly. It wasn't even work. And you know what the, ma- the most amazing part of this day was? When they asked me to perform, I remember looking at the programme. Oh, my God. I started like, you know, George the Poet is an amazing poet. He's Ugandan and I'm Ugandan. And when I heard him put poetry to music, I was like, I I should be able to do this. I can try and do this. And this is where music came into my poetry because I was like, I want to I do something like George. So when I got the program, it said George the Poet was performing and I thought they've set me up, haven't they? They've set me up. I'm not that good. <laughs> I'm not that good. Um, And I've got to meet George the Poet. And I think for me, it was like, I'm in a space where everyone in this room has some kind of connection to the criminal justice system in a way that I want. They want to help. They want to help improve the lives of people with uh, criminal convictions. And they want to promote these talents and these skills that people with convictions have. And for the first time, I was in a space that everything I needed to happen could happen. Um, And that worried me a little bit because I started to get afraid that I might mess something up and then go, you know, in my depression mode and go crazy. But I didn't. Because That's the old imposter syndrome thinking, right? oh, I'm not good enough I'm here. Not, literally, there. and I felt that for many years after prison, you know, I, there's opportunities that I missed because I just didn't think I was good enough. And I think that was just a prison. You know, you, you, you get broken so much that you, you don't even know if you want something or you need it. Like, do I want it? Do I need it? What is it? But being around, you know, National Prison Radio kind of showed me that I can do it. And I guess that's where I started performing more poetry. You know, I won an open mic. Um, I won an open mic uh, competition in was it Welling, and I won five hundred pound. And that five hundred pound I used to go back to Uganda um, and visit inmates in Ugandan prisons um, because I knew that if I had been deported from Morton Hall, I would have ended up in a prison in Uganda, and I kind of wanted to see what it was that I was up against, you know? Um, so I went there and I, I spoke to the men 
Um, I gave them unchained t-shirts. I gave them all notebooks, pencils, shaving products. And I brought in, in Africa, you don't get like meals like in prison here where they give you a form to fill out that you have to, your family has to either bring you in food or you as, as inmates go and work and get this food, you know? So I, I, I took some food in that they can cook just simple stuff like beans and, 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 and rice and stuff. Um, and from there, you know, it just kept and kept on growing until I got offered my now um, home of Unchained Nights um, at Arts Admin. Um, they said, do you, when do you want to do an event then? I said, oh, I don't know, maybe soon. I just need to find some artists that all have criminal backgrounds. And they said, well, we can help you with that. And I said, okay, you know, that we can advertise for you and, you know, just write the message and we'll put it out there. And I said, okay. And I, I said, well, where are we going to do the, the event? And they literally said to me, here. And we was in the cafe and I was like, what? Oh, how much is that going to cost me? And they said, it's not going to cost you anything. You don't have to pay that. This is us. We want to give you this space because we want to help promote your night. And lo and behold, I've had, what, four, maybe five Unchained Nights there. You know, we was meant to have one in May, but COVID. Um, so I've basically just been going and doing those nights with... Um, arts admin but the most important thing that's come out of my work is that now I can go back into prisons and I could do workshops in prisons and I, I do poetry workshops and I perform some of my poetry you know um, and which is good because when I'm in the prisons because I do national prison radio and I host a few shows there my voice is already known within the prison system so when I come into the prison they're like oh yeah it's a lady on change you know and it's like I'm actually kind of famous in prison so you're becoming a bit like... of an influencer <laughs> in your own little yeah. niche market so do you feel looking back now do you feel that your life has taken this route I'm not asking you from a religious point of view but like there's some sort of synchronicity that's conspired to bring you to this position and you're pleased it's taking you on this journey I 100% believe that I was meant to go to prison. I think that the the, the sentence that I got for my first um, offence was so big, like, and, you know, for me a lot, that I, I personally think everything that has happened through my sentence has led me to here. And I don't thank the judge, I don't thank the justice system for sending me to prison because I think I could have gone to prison if that was still, I think that was meant to go there, but I could have gone to prison and completely lost my mind. And I could have gone a whole different way where I came out angry at the system, you know, angry at myself, angry at my family, angry at my siblings and angry at these girls that attacked me, you know, and I could have carried the anger. And had I carried the anger, I don't think I would be doing anything that I, I am doing now because I wouldn't have dealt with my own pain. But the truth is, everything that happened to me in prison, there were signs that literally said to me, you're meant to be here. Like, the one thing I will say to you that it's going to sound crazy, but in the foreign national prison, I was sewing clothes. So we sewed clothes for all the prisons. And what you do is you part like, so if you're making tracksuit bottoms, you do a leg, you pass it on. Somebody else sews on the other part, you pass it on. Same with the jackets, you do an arm. And f just to be funny, I sewed in the letter B in a tracksuit bottom in the leg, right? I then passed that leg on you know, went through my prison sentence, went to Downview, you know, every Friday you get new tracksuit bottoms. So you're allowed two pairs of tracksuit bottoms, two t-shirts and two jumpers. Every Friday you then take them to be changed. When I got enhanced and was put on the enhanced landing, I was entitled to go and do my own washing in the laundry room. 
So I kept my two tracksuit bottoms because I was like, I can just wash them whenever I want to, right? And I remember putting them inside out, shaking them and putting them down and doing something else. And at the corner of my eye, I could see something and I did not understand what it was because I thought it can't be, it cannot be. Inside those grey tracksuit bottoms was the letter B sewed in. The same one, the one you'd sewn in. Unless there's another person going around <laughs> sewing letter Bs in tracksuit bottoms, Steve, I'll be honest, it had to have been mine. And I just, I remember saying to the officer, can you come and can you come here a minute? And he said, what's wrong? I said, I need you to lock the door. I need to pray. He said, you what? I said, I, I need to pray. And he was like, oh, all right then. I said, I'll, I'll knock, I'll knock after. And for somebody that's in prison, you don't ever want to be locked behind your doors. You want to be free. But in that moment, I had to pray because I was like, God, you are a funny man. I don't know what your plan is, but I get there's something big that's going to happen. And even though I nearly lost that in between my being released and being depressed, I found it. And I found it through support of National Prison Radio, support of, you know, arts admin kind of putting my, helping me put my event together and support of people that have followed me and have actually come to my events and supported my artists. Because if they didn't, I wouldn't be able to support my artists and I wouldn't be able to see how... I guess how powerful this mission is. There is life after prison. And I think for a long time I had stopped believing that. And I thought that maybe I was meant to be like those te- the people on the TV going back to jail and in and out of prison, just like them, because that's what society tells me that I'm meant to do as an ex-offender. What I didn't see was people like what I do now. I didn't see them on telly. I didn't see them being um, represented. I didn't hear them on radio. And so for me, it was like, I have to be that person and lo and behold there's loads of us that do this there's loads of us that are doing amazing but we're not promoted enough and that is the reason I have to continue doing what I'm doing because if I don't what will be promoted is that what won't stop being promoted is the fact that people go to jail and young people commit crimes and there's drugs and there's drug lords and there's all this but what won't be promoted is the people that have been through those them same steps and have come out the other side and said actually there's a problem here. Our young people shouldn't go through this and have done that, but you won't hear about them. So for me, building Unchained Poetry was to give people like me that probably had just nearly about given up, give them a chance to say, I'm I'm allowed to be here. This is my space and this is my story. And yes, I committed a crime and that's I've owned up to my crimes. I've done my time. But I want to help people to not follow in that, that, that them footsteps. And that is literally what Unchained Poetry is about. Well, in a, in a world full of negative news, you just turn it on all day long. It's just so depressing. It, it's, we'll end it on a positive, upbeat note, like you just mentioned. We didn't even talk about the fact you did a TEDx talk as well. But oh, my uh, God, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll just drop that in we'll there just... as well as a good measure. So... Before we wrap up, how can people find you, connect with you on social media, um, touch base with you, find out more about where you, well, when lockdown's finished, <laughs> oh, um, gosh, probably yeah. COVID's finished, where you're doing, you know, more public events? Yeah, I mean, I'm on social media. So I am on Twitter, um, at Unchained Poetry, um, also on Instagram, at Lady Unchained, and also I have a 
um, at Unchained Poetry Instagram account. If you do follow it, do follow it because that one I've been, I've been neglecting it, guys. I'm sorry. Um, but there is stuff on there. And there's also, you know, YouTube Unchained Poetry. And you can hear some of my work on SoundCloud at Unchained Poetry. So everything's Unchained Poetry, to be and honest. And also, you recently did, I came across for BBC Radio 4, you did. Oh, a, my God. Yes. I, I found that, which, which is on their... Um, Oh, yes, on their it? website. On their website. Yes, it's called Unchained and it's all about um, short-term sentences for women, why they're very, not working. Very, very good. Beautifully yeah. produced as well. Thank very you, Jess. Very nicely put together. Jess is an amazing producer. Yeah, for a shout-out as well. <laughs> Big shout-out So there's out many ways you can get in touch. Finally, before we wrap up, I ask all my guests at this point in our conversation to mention one or two places that are particularly personal to them about London. Now, I don't want you to mention any prisons in London. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully <laughs> could you imagine? More. Could you imagine? That's my favourite place. Yeah, hopefully HMP. You've got a couple of places more inspiring and uplifting than that. <laughs> so um, take yes. it away. So, uh, my first place is Greenwich Park. Greenwich Park is a beautiful, beautiful park and it's massive. Like you can go in through Blackheath and end up down the bottom of Carty Sark. Like it's absolutely beautiful. And the reason I love that place is because before prison, um, when I was probably trying to deal with things that I should have dealt with properly, I would go to that park and sit on my own right on the top of the hill and look down at the Royal Observatory, um, the Royal Observatory, the Queen's House and just the beautiful scenery from the top where I would sit and I don't know it, yeah it was just a I guess it was a way of maybe if I wasn't going to Greenwich Park I would have been going somewhere else that would have made me angry because of what I was going through but this place was just calming and um what I've done now is I've replaced that because before I used to go there because I was like really depressed but now I've replaced it so I go there on good days and I sit in that same place so I've taken ownership of that space instead of it being a place where I used to come to when I was sad. It's now a place where I come to to celebrate um, life and happiness and growth. So yeah, Greenwich Park is one of them, to be honest. Um, the second one, believe it or not, Steve, I'm going to say this block, this this little area that I live in. Um, because as much as it's got its drama, it's got its crazy history of issues. Um, I've had this flat before and after prison and I've tried to move out of this flat many times and I haven't and again just like my prison sentence I think I'm meant to be here because had I not if I had moved out when I first come out of jail and if I finally managed to move out my producer that makes my music for um, my Unchained Poetry and the one who introduced me to the band he lives upstairs on the other side I wouldn't have met him yeah, big up to man like Alex. Um, he's just had an amazing, um, beautiful new baby girl. Um, so um, congratulations to him. Do you want to give a name to the, the block as well? Or um, yeah, uh, up to you? Congleton. This is the Congleton block. Congleton block. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because um, the whole address is like really fancy. You'd think that we live in like a video. It's like the Willows and the Redwoods and the, like it's all like oh it's fancy and then you get here and you're like oh oh it's not it's not fancy at all um but another thing about it is the walls are really like it's really weird like you can hear a lot of like sounds I'd like to stand here with just a microphone and just hear all the different noises because I don't know if you've heard Kyle Cuttermore who does like um survive a prison survival guide he he's the author of that actually he's gone into prisons and done recordings and you can hear the different sounds and for some reason I'll be honest I think that the sounds you hear here might be very similar to prison, but in a different way, if that makes sense. So yeah, I I want to big up this little area because it has brought me a lot of, I've got loads of memories here, good, bad, 
sour, rainy snow. <laughs> um, and I have a dog in this flat. I don't know if I'd moved if I would have been allowed to have well, a pet. He's been a good dog, or she's he's, been a good dog. I don't know. He's been, yeah, he's been very good. He's been. He's been a bark free zone. He's been coming to the door. That's what you Has can't he? hear him. He comes to the door and you can hear him just kind of because he's listening, and then he goes back just to make sure. Like, he's but just yeah, checking. Just, <laughs> just checking. checking. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Brenda. Oh, it's been Thank amazing. So it's been amazing. Keep up your brilliant work. Thank um, you. Keep your chin up. You're doing some fantastic stuff. I know it's not easy in this uh, lockdown scenario that we've been living in. This honestly, type of lockdown for you. Honestly, yeah, honestly, just, it's a new take, kind of lockdown. Take take it in your stride, as you have done everything else in your life. It would it would seem. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, we'll see we'll see you soon, hopefully, and in, in a live performance. Yes. Well, we might have a live performance soon if they change everything because um, we looked at an open open space venue. Um, outdoor venue so i will keep you updated cool. and um Lovely. yeah 100 percent stuff thank Thanks you so much for having me cheers <laughs> i absolutely love creating your london legacy for you and the feedback and testimonials are awesome but as it grows so it consumes more and more resources so i've joined forces with patreon a really cool place where you can show your love and support from just as little as two dollars a month as a silver londoner right up to $300 per month where you get the crown jewels. Each level of subscription opens up a host of exclusive extra goodies, events, bonus shows and sponsorship opportunities only available via, via Patreon. I do hope you will continue to support what we're doing here and I'm so grateful for whatever you feel able to give. So please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. That's www.patreon.com patreon.com forward slash your London legacy.